Welcome to the Ether. Today is Wednesday, October 26, 2022. Today on the Ether, part three of the three part Chepe Space Everything. Cosmos, Adam, Stars, Juno, Luna, Lunk, Kuji, everything. Let's take a listen. We are the greatest nation for a reason. <clears throat> so, um, so the idea here is. Um, so the the so-called bricks this just makes sure that your your th- your theory is like make sure they just keep fighting each other for some reason or the other well they are right they are russia is engaged in a, in two wars actually um it's engaged in a war in ukraine and then it's engaged in a low-level counterinsurgency in the caucasus which people forget um and then china could easily be engaged in multiple wars which i would support uh Brazil is heavily engaged in the drug war, which has been sapping up huge resources, which, again, I support. Um, and then South Africa <clears throat> is engaged, not really any, any wars right now, but could easily be engaged in wars that uh, could be pressed on them very easily. For example, Mozambique is not far away, and they're engaged in a war against ISIS. If we, if we have to go defend Taiwan, though, we are screwed. The China's military is bigger. They're, they're, well, their navy's bigger than ours. They're, uh, they have more aircraft. Have you heard of anti-ship missiles? Of course, yeah. We would just Taiwan will shoot a lot of anti-ship missiles. That that's all. And then that'll take care of their navy. They'd be very surprised. You saw that the Russian ship Moskova was blown up with one anti-ship missile. Well, that's true. Yeah, and that was from Ukraine. Right? Uh, Casey, don't forget, like the the submarine fleet, uh, the U.S. submarine fleet is no joke. Like, no, I understand that. No, I definitely understand that. Do those ship missiles, can they target submarines too or not? They can also target submarines, yes. Okay. No, I mean, I I, I just think they're pretty evenly matched is what I mean. I just uh, think it'd be a, a tough battle by uh, uh, by a lot of means. But uh, once we you get those drones them, up and running, we'll be good. Everyone said China would be the largest country economy in the world. That I always said that was never going to happen lack of competitiveness um we will defeat them there we will defeat them with the currency their currency no one fucking wants absolutely no one wants renminbi their population is interesting to me seeing all the work on the the so like where where so you i think you talked about this before a bit like what's your take on the population story as far as like china's population not being able to keep up and well uh, it's a fact their population can't keep up People confuse things easily. There are some countries which have negative population birth rates, but have a huge amount of immigrant workers. South Korea is one of them, by the way. South oh, Korea will never have you a think, population. You think immigrant workers going to be able to compensate? You think China is no. a immigrant worker? No, can uh, China is too closed off to have the number of migrant workers. South Korea is not a large country. 
they had millions of migrant workers coming in every season. So the number of citizens goes down, but the number of, in terms of the population, the working population continues to rise. So they just get more and more migrant workers. So are China would need tens of millions of migrant workers, tens of millions of migrant workers a year. So they're going to have to start, <laughs> they would need to get them from countries like Bangladesh, Pakistan, Nigeria, countries of huge populations that would want to work in China. And uh, the number of the number of babies or whatever that were born so far and the and the future population of China, which is essentially already predicated on the number of births that are already out there today. Essentially, yeah. this idea that like China's population could drop to seven, eight hundred to seven hundred million, actually, within a fairly short period of time. And a lot of their 30 years. Um, and yeah, I think it was like 20, 30 years. Right. And then the, the their competitiveness can drop off quite a lot. So actually. Interestingly, as far as like population demographics, um, oddly enough, the the U.S. is actually reasonably positioned compared to a lot of other regions. We get a lot of people from South America and Central America. I say let them in secretly, have a very strong anti-immigration platform, but let them all through the back door. We need them. Um, I'm always big on finding enemies. So find some enemies. Blame Mexico a lot of the time. Good. But let Mexicans continue to cross the border to work in the United States and give them a pass to citizenship secretly. Uh, make sure it's super hard for legally for countries to immigrate. For example, the Eagle Act. Have you heard about the Eagle Act? Mm, I don't think so. Which one was it? It's to reduce the congestion of in- Indians who want to apply for visas to the United States. Right now, it takes 800 days to get an interview at an American embassy. 800 days. Wow. Yeah. And so... I say keep that going, let it be 900 days so that we force India into concessions. If they want to have their young people educated to work in the United States and come back to bring back their skills, you need to concede your foreign policy to the United States. Allow us to control your foreign policy the same way we allow um, same way that Japan allows us to control their foreign policy, the same way that Mexico allows us to control their foreign policy. Until they accept that agreement, keep it to 900 days. It will always be Indians who want to go to the United States. Keep it competitive. And that's the reason why we have to have that policy. If we don't have people from Central America come to the United States, we will be forced to concede and bring more Indians, for example, to the United States to work instead. So by having everything equally bad, you force these countries to compete with one another to give um, their own sovereignty over to us, the United States, over time. An interesting thing about the um, Hispanic population that moves from Central and South uh, South America to the United States is it's interesting how much proportion, it's interesting what proportion of them are actually relatively libertarian or actually even. Even re- or relatively on the right, comparatively, which is kind of funny. You almost religious. Oh yeah, it's religious, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Par- yeah, partly religious, but quite a few that I that are really quite libertarian as well. So it's like if you take the people who like spontaneously migrate out of their country and run away, um, and they, you know, and they have that kind of like frontier spirit in a sense of like, uh, like I, going I think to. You're, a you're making it up. I don't know where you came up with the frontier spirit. What's that supposed to mean? Well, the idea that like kind of um, like imagine if you live in a country where you speak one language and you're going to another language, another country where you don't speak that language 
and you are willing to give up like the hey, CPI. They're here uh, in the United States to make money, and so they can send the money back home. To make more money requires being a libertarian because you believe in deregulation and being pro-business. That's why they're libertarian. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, libertarian in the sense that, like, if you are, if you're the the phenotypic person who's likely to um, break, able to handle going to a completely new location and breaking free of all the entrapments of the like the, your major extended family or whatever you have, you have to swap languages and everything else. There's a certain kind of like mindset that goes into that type of person, like no matter where they're going. And I think there's a tendency to have a lot of like. Um, I mean, there are a lot of, of, of immigrant groups who vote Democrat, dude. So. Oh, yeah, sure. No well, question. Are, but... I'm just saying proportionally, it's impressive how much are actually either um, libertarian or right compared to what you might think it would be. Well, the most oh, right wing oh. immigrants are typically Haitians, mm-hmm. Cubans, by far Cubans, yep. Guatemalans, yep. Nicaraguans. Uh, Colombians and Venezuelans. Unfortunately, unfortunately, the most left-leaning ones are people from certain countries that may or may not be in the Middle East. Hmm. Interesting. Yep, that is interesting. Yeah, Lebanese Americans. I don't want to go down the list. Yeah, but you're right. There is a strong tendency towards people on the left from the region for whatever reason. I think I think we need these people too, just because honestly, uh, a lot of them pay all the taxes and social security and stuff that, uh, you know, even though they're not getting any of the benefits, I mean, the only way to keep that shit going is to have these people paying those bills because the money is running out for social security and and Medicare and all that stuff. I mean, uh, I'm not saying it's right, but I'm just saying like, we're getting low on money and, and, uh, they, they do pay their, why do all the Armenians vote Democrat? What's up with that? Armenians do. I have no idea. Well, someone explain. Someone come here and explain to me why do you constantly vote Democrat? Democrats ain't helping you very much. Yeah, every actually, uh, you're you're not wrong. Every Armenian I know who I've ever met is is Democrat left for sure. Well, why? Armenian in the well, well, what did they What did they get out of it? But what? Why? I have no idea. Social justice, brother. Social fuck you. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm not sure what they're what they're voting for, honestly. But yeah, the, every Armenian I know, which is not very many, uh, happen to be. There's a lot, though. I mean, how many? There's like half a million Armenians who live in the United States. Hmm. I walked into a tech fun spaces. <laughs> I didn't expect it to be so political. <laughs> no, we're, uh, just, we're again, just leering off to random things. That's all. Yeah. No, Where are you from, Pete? I kind of agree with you when you said that there's a lot of people who belong to countries and when they come to the Europe or United States, they're actually more right leaning. And that's mainly because they have inherent conservative values uh, in either their culture or the family where they belong from. And uh, with Jimmy, Jimmy suggested that some Middle Eastern countries are more left leaning. That's usually because the countries are very conservative and very strong and uh, they're very right-leaning, I guess. So that's why they, they they flee the country to escape that system. So they're usually very against it. Well, I've never... You know, Iranian-Americans, Armenian-Americans, Lebanese-Americans, which of course are millions of in the United States, for some reason they all vote Democrat. I don't know why. My father-in-law lived in Iran for a period of time, um, I think it was like seven or eight years. 
And um, he was a surgeon there for a period of time. And he like remembers the time of like Jimmy Carter and the Iran revolution. And uh, to his day, to the day he died, he cursed, uh, he cursed the, um, the, the Carter regime as being morons. <laughs> like, and, uh, and uh, like the, the system that got rid of the Shah of Iran and everything. Well, Khomeini then, was a CIA plant. He was living in France at the time. And the reason why we had to get rid of the Shah was um, the CIA was really worried. And don't forget, not only had we gotten rid of the Shah, we got rid of his father, too. So don't forget that um, was we were too worried about them becoming too powerful. That was the truth. We were trying to figure out a huge issue in the Middle East, which is that these countries have oil and they have a military. And they have deep water ports. The combination of all three unchecked leads to regional powers and we cannot allow that to happen hmm, interesting so that was kind of your th- your thought on maybe you, you why in the middle east you're not allowed to have both oil deep water ports and a large military not acceptable and i don't think it should be acceptable because you're going to start fucking fighting everyone we want you want europe 1940 uh, 1939 again i don't want that mm. hell no uh, again i just find it funny how America and Americans try to prove why they've uh, come and screwed over all these countries. I'm not sure why America can't just focus now, on its own problems I, I and think, sort its own shit. No, I think of, the answer is pretty simple, V. Like, so th- there used to be something called Monroe, Monroe, Monroe Doctrine Theory, which essentially said that, like, America's going to leave everyone the fuck alone. You leave us alone and we'll go about our business. And um, what what slowly happened is um with the discovery of oil and sort of like all sorts of like intermingled oil interest uh, one thing uh and by the way if it wasn't for like the people in Pennsylvania that figured out how to refine oil no one would give a flying fuck about anybody in the middle east like that's probably first thing second is the petro agro revolution that resulted from these discoveries actually led to a massive explosion of the middle eastern population so a lot of the people wouldn't even be alive today if it wasn't for that invention right like it, it was like a really seminal event in the history of the Middle East to be able to not only discover eventually that oil was there, but there's a use for it, right? Which is a very interesting sort of economic achievement for the Middle East. But what ends up happening with the Monroe Doctrine was like, okay, we will leave everybody else alone. As long as you leave North America alone, um, you know, we won't sort of come fuck with you. And then you had issues that came about such as like Pearl Harbor um, in World War II. Uh, you had issues like World War One that dragged Americans into it. So, like, it's not like the Europeans didn't fucking drag Americans kicking and screaming, uh, losing a goddamn lot of lives and blood. Like, if the flip side were to happen, let's say, for example, I don't know, Mexico decides to invade America. Not How once, many troops is Europe going to send to come Nobody. help? I'd like to see. Right? Nobody. Like, I think the flip side is like, you know, you know. So, I don't know that, like. When people say, well, we're not really sure why Americans get involved, it's like, I don't know. We were dragged, like, kicking, and uh, we, I wasn't there at the time, so what the fuck do I know? But we, we were dragged, kicking, and streaming, and non-interventionalism sort of led to getting dragged in anyway, is sort of what happened, right? So, well, I don't know. And the majority of the NATO stuff, too. It's like, hey, man, that's not even our fight over there. 
Well, you know what, guys? There's only one continent in world history where if given the opportunity and no one controls them, they will start fighting each other, leading to the deaths of millions of people. Europe. And I one time was lecturing at a university, a Hillsdale College, and I explained, I asked a question, a very simple question. Anyone want to tell me why there are half a million troops, American troops stationed in Europe? No one could answer. No one even raised their hands. I asked the same question in a European college. They knew why. To stop the Europeans from fucking killing each other. That's why. <laughs> yeah, like World War One and Two were not exactly the fault of outsiders. It was just the biggest clusterfuck of idiocy like the human, human race has ever perpetuated. And actually, like more people died with Europeans killing Europeans than like, I don't know, substantial portion of Middle Eastern wars, American interventions, or whatever the fuck There's else. There's never like, been a Middle Eastern war in history that ever came close to the casualties of any European war, ever. There are five European wars in the last 300 years that killed more people. The Seven Years' War. You, of course, had the War of Austrian Succession. You had <clears throat> the War, the Napoleonic Wars. And, of course, you had the World War I and World War II. Five wars. They killed more people. and. The reason why we go to the Middle East a lot is because Europeans left and we took up the mantle. And it's not because we care about Middle Eastern people. We don't particularly. But because we need to control the oil supply. If the Europeans imagine this, Epi, France has has access to limitless oil. What would you think would happen? You think they're going to be friends with us again? You think they're going to play by our rules? You think that they're going to listen to international order and consensus? You think they're going to have to have friendly allies they have to, you know, agree with, forced to agree with? No. No, they're not going to do that. They don't have any access to any oil in their territory. But if they did, like Algeria, which they once had, or Syria, which they once had, all hell will rain down upon the rest of Europe like Napoleon did. Or like many of the other wars the French fucking started. There's no difference. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the Europeans have not had a good track record. Uh, so, like, mm, I don't know, like, yeah, so, uh, uh, so not, not to say that, like, that means that whatever American adventures are all perfect. Um, no war ends up... Name me one that perfect. wasn't. Yeah. N- name which one? Name me a war that wasn't perfect. Right. One of our adventures. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Afghanistan. Or, I mean, it wasn't a war. No, come on, guys. That was a perfect adventure. We came in... We came in with a country that we had to destroy. We destroyed it. We kicked out a government until we didn't need it. And now we have a government that at any time is forced to follow our demands if they want any access to resources. We have essentially another puppet government. The Taliban switch sides. And if we need them to be uh, hostile to China, they'll do it. Because of Islam, we just have another Islamic thing where, oh, China is the infidel again. Hey, all these Muslim uh, organizations in Afghanistan who believe in Sharia across Western China again, support the Uyghur people, get, go, go towards them now. Fight those guys. We could have had a situation where Afghanistan was under Iranian and Chinese influence, especially Iranian influence. Because don't, don't forget, the Taliban didn't control the, the country. The Taliban didn't control the country. No, they they will be because there's there's a thousand Uyghurs. There's a thousand Uyghurs in in Afghanistan right now. There's a thousand Uyghurs in Afghanistan right now who support the Uyghur independence and separatists, and they're also members of Al Qaeda. And I support Al Qaeda. V, do you support Al Qaeda? 
V, do you support Al Qaeda? Jimmy, because I support Al Qaeda. America has been supporting Al Qaeda for thirty years. Jimmy, you don't know what you're talking about, mate. Uh, let me walk in if I can finish without being interrupted. The truth is, is that the TIP, which is the um, the Turkestan Independence Party, Islamist Party, sorry, the Turkestan Islamist Party, they have been supported by the CIA for a long time. They have a base in northwestern Syria. We took them off the terrorist list and uh, we enable them to infiltrate into China when it's required. And of course, they have long CIA ties. They also have bases in Afghanistan now. So there's a base in Afghanistan, not far away from Kashgar in southwestern China, where there's a Uyghur population there, too. Um, it should also be said that during 2001, the Taliban didn't control Afghanistan. They controlled Kandahar. They controlled uh, the area around Harat, but not much of it. And they controlled, obviously, Kabul. They controlled about 60 percent of the country. So at no time did the Taliban have full control that they could have basically sold as influence to Russia or China. We always made sure that Afghanistan, which is too strategically important to ever be powerful, was always in the midst of complete and total chaos. And they are to this day. We continue to support the Panjshiris, who continue to threaten the Taliban. And we continue to have CIA contacts the Taliban to potentially support a Islamist insurgency in Western China. And I, for one, am very proud of that. We cannot let China ever become powerful, ever have the influence over Central Asian natural gas and oil. Never, never have a natural gas line between China and Iran. It will never happen under our watch, the United States. Never. China already has massive influence over South Asia, including Pakistan. Name me the natural gas pipeline, sir. Name me the pipeline, sir. Because that's the only thing that matters. Name me the pipeline. Name me the pipeline that they built. Name me the pipeline, sir. If you say this, name me the pipeline. Because you cannot. You cannot name me. Name me the pipeline, sir. Name me that pipeline. Name me the pipeline. V, come on. If you can, essentially, like the access to oil is essentially and natural gas gas for that matter is sort of chinese um the china's issue and so like whether they coordinate with russia for that or like currently they don't have any other direct great options it's not that hard to destroy pipelines and things so ultimately like um it's easy to surreptitiously destroy these things one way or the other so it's, it's it's not that easy to access huge amounts of oil from the Middle East to China necessarily. I don't I don't know what kind of infrastructure is being built or not. I mean, we now. let India buy most of uh, Iran's oil and natural gas. We do this because India is a natural competitor to China. Um, India is building a natural gas line to Iran, but at no point in time will India ever sell that stuff to China. Never. So for that, it is acceptable. But imagine that Central Asia and Iran both are under the complete influence of China. They will then have unlimited access to all the natural resources required to become that superpower. Well, not just the superpower, but the superpower and the largest economy in the world. They'll never happen under our watch. We continue to protect the peace. American liberty is American empire. And if you don't like it, you can get out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. Th- well, there's there are lots of different things that I think in the nature of the world that um, like so the the distant sort of American policy decisions uh, some superficially look oh look this is bad but 
the number of wars that have been averted because of the United States nuclear submarine fleet cannot be understated. Like <laughs> there, there's a good reason. Good yeah, the, the nuclear umbrella creates uh, created essentially one of the lowest mortality. Um, Name me a war in South America between South American countries since we had nukes. Exactly. None. Uh, the 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 in general, like the nuclear umbrella, gives everyone pause in terms of like uh, the types of war that, wars they're willing to fight or or begin. And, uh, you know, so a lot of the big, big wars, at least, have slowed down considerably. So if you look at the last, I don't know, 50 years after World War II, uh, or really maybe after Vietnam, I suppose, the, the relative amount of total mortality due to, like, uh, warfare, um, even when you include the Iraq wars and, you know, whatever, like Afghanistan and such, overall mortality relatively low compared to the size of the population of the planet compared to the time before that. So huge, huge difference. And the only reason that you can identify that's really particularly obvious is the nuclear umbrella. Um, that, uh, per- I mean, per- the doctor almost got nuclear weapons and see what happened to that guy, which exactly. means warning sign, don't try and get yeah. nuclear weapons. My question is, have you guys read uh, Change in World Order by Ray Dalio? I mean, yeah, sure. He's kind of saying that uh, America's on the downswing, and it's not really. I mean, yeah, we have we have bases all over. You have to wonder though, Ray. He has a lot of business interests in China. Do you ever wonder that it's actually ghostwritten? I actually don't believe he's that good of a writer. And I I think what he told the ghostwriter, he's certainly rich enough. Hey, make a pro-China piece. Everyone's going to ignore me anyway. No one in the security establishment in DC cares what my opinion is, and I give them enough money through lobbying efforts to kind of like tell them that yeah, it's just a piece of fluff. Because he, don't forget, guys, let's say that you have a company of some kind which relates to uh, uh, hybrid cars. China is the largest refiner of most rare earth metals. If you piss them off, you're not going to get that stuff. That's of an course. example. So yeah, didn't, didn't play both sides. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. You go ahead. <laughs> no, I was uh, in Afghanistan. I know we left a bunch of lithium and cobalt mi- mines behind, and that would have been a great resource for us. But now China's basically got them all. I would imagine. Uh, well, I'd love to see them refine them. Well, what the, we're going to do yeah, is the Taliban has three rock. major factions. Yeah. The Taliban is comprised of the faction based out of um, Panjawawi, which is uh, like the Haqqani group is like ISIS and Al Qaeda plus mafia. There are very strange people who are currently in their Taliban government with the last name Haqqani. Haqqani is not a family name. Haqqani is a tribal name of people who attended the mosques in the Haqqani Network's area of influence in Wajiristan and Pakistan. That's one faction. By the way, we have very, very strong CIA contacts with them. Just type in CIA contacts, Haqqani Network, and drug lords. For example, we recently released one of the drug lords from a Miami prison two weeks ago to the Haqqanis. He was one of the most powerful, uh, Norzai, his name is Norzai. He was one of the most powerful drug lords in Central Asia. We released him. Hakani Network wanted him back. Fair enough. Um, the other uh, faction is the one based out of Kandahar, which is the one that on its face runs the Taliban, which of course has really no political power because they don't have the military. They are the people who you know, show up to the meetings. Those people. Um, and then finally, there's the a network of people who are close to uh, this guy called Haqtamar in the northeast of Afghanistan and the Al-Qaeda network. And, you know, for example, Hayat al-Asham or uh, HTS and Hayat al-Tahir 
uh, before that were known as Jabhat al-Nazra, had very close contacts to the CIA in the beginning of the Syrian Civil War. We had a Javelin program where we delivered anti-tank missiles to the Syrian rebels. Majority of them ended up in the hands of al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda-affiliated groups. We then delisted most of those groups from the terrorist lists in the last three years. Turkey has a very close grasp of these groups. One of them just took over uh, an area that was formerly occupied by the Kurds. No, not only did we support that, but Turkish helicopters started flying over them. In the recent battle between the Russians and Syrians versus al-Qaeda and the Turks, the Turks won hands down because they had a ton of drones. Don't forget, most of those drones have American parts. So we control parts of al-Qaeda. When necessary, we'll unleash them on China when it's convenient for us. Then we have other parts of al-Qaeda, which get fucking drone smacked. Like uh, the guy control, you mean by control, you mean kind of like we're leveraging influence. We created that. a new face of al-Qaeda, which is mm-hmm. more because, you know, Giuliani, just type in Giuliani CNBC interview. There's an interview of, by CNBC. They went over to Giuliani, who was the head of uh, Hayat al-Tahir, which is uh, their new version of al-Qaeda in Syria, which has disavowed officially between them and al-Qaeda, which, of course, is still al-Qaeda, though. Don't forget, Osama bin Laden is uh, venerated in that area. And there's an interview of him and CNBC. He does a lot of interviews with Western media, especially American media. He speaks very well. So we control that face of al-Qaeda. It's a kind of al-Qaeda which has real political and military power and can move to Turkey, which, by the way, just type in Giuliani in Turkey. Tons of pictures of him in airports in Turkey. He goes around freely, no problems at all. And then there's the other part of Al-Qaeda that lives in caves in Afghanistan and Pakistan, which you can't be reasoned with. So we drone smack them like uh, Zawahiri. Why is it that we drone smacked all these other guys, but we kept Giuliani alive? Because they refuse to be controlled by us. I have no problem with that, guys. Why fight when you can control? It's the way it works. Don't be suckers. Ideology is one thing. But when we need to use them, we will use them against China and Russia. And then will come a day when we have to, by the way. We supported the Ukrainian military for the last 10 years. And look what happened to them. They're better than the Russians. So conceptually, it's like taking uh, maybe downtrodden uh, Muslim Islamic populations in, say, China and or Russia, and then sort of like pushing them towards uh, fighting against those countries um if you are a religious muslim and you tell them hey these countries are infidels hey you have an organization that is extremely well organized and follows the scholars the islamic jurisprudence scholars those scholars of course are on american payrolls you can easily organize an islamic group and front of other islamic groups and affiliates to fight these guys it happened in afghanistan it happened in even in the Caucasus uh, against the Russians. And it happened in other countries like Yemen, which uh, these groups were used to fight uh, the Houthis, which is an Iranian-backed group. It, you go down the list. It's not hard for us to do this. Yeah, well, for example, happened, Libya, many who, do you think took, who do you think overthrew Gaddafi? You think it was like nuns in pom-poms? No, it was people connected to Al-Qaeda. And we got them there. We flew them over. We gave them some weapons. A couple weeks later, Gaddafi was dead. Now there's complete chaos in Libya. You know, my question for you is if uh, if you were con- in control of exiting that war that we just got out of, uh, what, what would one? you have done differently? Afghanistan? Yeah. 
nothing. Nothing. We did fine. We, we did. We never there to win the war. Was the war aim ever to quote unquote win the war? The war aim was to control the area to prevent it from falling into enemy hands. Whatever the fuck that means. Right now, those enemy hands are Chinese hands. Well, didn't we leave all the uh, the people that helped us do that too behind? Yeah, and because why would we need them anymore? Well, I understand that. Uh, I, I get. We've done that many times. There's a quote by Henry Kissinger when the Americans supported the Kurds in Iraq and the Iranians were supporting the Kurds against Saddam Hussein. And then the Iranians turned against the Kurds. Henry Kissinger was asked about that. He said, we don't run a charity group here. We don't run a charity group here, Casey. It wasn't that oh, different from that. when uh, we sort of abandoned Vietnam to a large extent. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we let people come over the country over our, you know, over our borders. Like that doesn't exist. So it's just, I don't know. I, I guess Casey, it's, uh, a bar with Henry Cabot Lodge. He was the American ambassador to Vietnam for most of the war. He ever heard of a Machiavellian guy who was extremely influential in D.C.? Henry Cabot Lodge was the most important influential politicians in American history. I'll have to do some research on that's interesting. Sorry, guys, I got rocked while, while Jimmy was speaking. Good uh, Jimmy, one of the things I just wanted to say was that while you, you, you do say that it's uh, it was a success what America did and nothing needs to be changed, um, but America has left uh, Afghanistan quite open. We have drones flying over Afghanistan every single China, day. China is investing significantly in the region and Pakistan. Name me the place you're investing in, in Afghanistan. Name me the source, name me the mine, name me the person that they're using. Because I can name you one of the Haqqanis, for example, who, again, has extremely strong CIA ties. Who, if you read, for example, the Washington Post and how we released one of the drug lords to his custody. Why do you think we get in return for that? You think he, we do, do you, that because we feel bad about drug lords? Do you think that you're going to get everything correctly in the Washington Post, bro? If you're getting no, but it just reported that Post, the drug lord was released. Luck. That was also in the DJ paper. The thing he's is, released. Like, I'm not saying that the Washington Post is correct or not, but the fact is, he was released. There's even a picture of him on a plane when he got back to Kabul. And you won't get anything Oops. correctly about any event in human history, regardless of reporter or any other de- like the details, 100%. the nuances, and the fog of war just sort of just evaporate. What we're going to do is we're going to send tons of drugs from Afghanistan, opium mostly, and send it over the border to China and have them hooked on drugs again like they did in the 1880s. And this is going to be a response to their large amounts of fentanyl being sold. Sipai, you know this, right? China produces a huge amount of fentanyl that is brought oh, yeah. from Mexico over to the United States. So we're going to do the same to them again. That's how it works. Yeah, I mean, that's what the Taliban kind of stopped uh, in Afghanistan. They, they didn't allow people to create those drugs. Huge opium, but they're going to sell it. They're going to sell it to smugglers and to drug lords. And they're going to push it across to China. Yeah, but they're not going to allow Afghans to use it. Yeah, it largely affects that Golden Triangle region of which China and um, Pakistan, India, kind of all kind of fall into that that you know the, this little triangle there. So you wind up with um, sort of all sorts of drug related fallout. But yeah, like I wonder what the control mechanisms there are for that the southern China area for that. Like, do you think it's sufficient enough to make a big difference versus China? Both drugs. Anything and- required to reduce their influence is worthwhile. I mean, don't forget there was a recent uh, Chinese drug lord who was arrested in the Amsterdam airport. Just type in an Amsterdam airport Chinese drug lord. This dude was operating out of China for a long time with different fake passports, and he was in charge of smuggling um, 
opium and heroin and uh, basically their version, a local version of meth from the Golden Triangle of Myanmar, Laos and Thailand through in logistics pallets out of Thailand and Vietnam into Australia, United States and Western Europe. And that's all they did. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny how like no matter which intelligence agency you talk about, like globally, the level of sort of like sort of the, the, the kind of like Machiavellian sort of chaos errors, like uh, if you use any traditional value system to explain why these why these different groups do what they do, like you will never understand why it is that they do. It's like yeah. the literal type of people they recruit to do the type of activities are. Almost you think Oliver North should be a shining example of morality? This dude got AKs from Egypt, which were paid for by Israel, sent them over to uh, uh, into Nicaragua, but making sure that the Iranians were the ones who technically exported it. And the Iranians were paid in drugs, in drug money. You know, the Iran-Contra affair. Yeah. <laughs> so the level of sort of like intricacy when it comes to these little projects around the world. And by the way, it's not like the American intelligence agencies are the only ones doing this kind of fuckery. It's just right. all around. Right. Like it's it's really true. No, all we're just bad about it because it's always going to be found out. Yeah. And there's no question that anytime you hear stories about these things, you're like, wait a minute. Does that represent our values or whatever our values are? But the reality is, is that like Oliver North is on Fox News every week talking about American values. That guy. Right. Exactly. So, so it, you know, the it, truth it, is, Americans are too moral to be able to do it easily. We have too many moral qualms. Hey, Jimmy. Too many right. Americans show up on what? Um, what do you want? Um, hi, guys. So basically, I, I would say, you know, right now it's very difficult for any nation to influence actually Chinese nationals inside of China. They put them in such a control scheme with all the AI surveillance going on. I mean, you couldn't even sell drugs without the government knowing. They know every, I, I know a guy from the government. China. We have to try though. We have to try. You won't get there. It's, it's it's over, you know. You completely lost the control there. That's what the Chinese have been doing, and I think um, there's no way to get there because they won't let you in the country. You know, okay. of course, you make a lot of good points, but you know what? We have to just keep developing our methods to make sure that this, you know, reducing China's influence will occur. We we're not going to give up. The alternative is much worse. I, I, yeah, the, the, I think the ultimate reality is, and I think the part that people don't really, um, when they say, well, Americans are gallivanting doing this fuckery and that fuckery. The reality is, is that like the Chinese version of that does not look a whole lot prettier by any stretch of the imagination. So no, I'm not, not arguing that. It just yeah, means you lost like, the edge. Yeah. There, you know? and there's yeah, no, no you're right. Like, we, you it's quite no, possible. We it's, have. There's absolutely no means to recover the edge. You know, if you talk today, I mean, my, my, my family well, is Chinese, right? And I can't even talk with them about any politics. It, it depends on how you see. It depends they, on how unethical you want to be to get there. So uh, the that's problem, not entirely it, true. So like it, our bioweapons capability is out of like is is uh, not to be gawked at. Like so yeah, of the, course the you can whack like, them, you know. But it doesn't change the fact that at the moment every Chinese, I would say like ninety eight percent, when she was voted for the third time, they all stood up and cheered and said, "We're the greatest nation." And in the world, you know, they really believe that they're so indoctrinated. I can't even talk to my own family about politics. First of all, they cut my 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 phone calls because they're listening to anything I'm saying in Chinese. 
if I use some dialect, okay, the, the so AI is not from, that. But you're from where originally? I'm a German. Okay, German, but like, what, like, so you have family in China then? My wife's Chinese. Or... I lived there for 18 years. Oh, okay, okay. Fluent in Chinese. And in so like, what's, what's your impression? They're not going to arrest you, though. Sorry? What was this, Sefi? They rarely arrest German nationals. Germany has always been a good friend of China, if you go back to the history. Well, I went there because I had importing business and I just met my wife out of chance, you know. So there's nothing political there. It's just whatever it is, you know. So I'm not here talking about my relationship with my wife or whatever it is. What, is your, what does your wife believe? Um, uh, so what, is, what are her thoughts about uh, sort of the nature of China today as being a Chinese national originally? Well, put it that way. My wife's family basically lost everything which they owned in the Great Leap, right? Because they had some property and they were really treated badly and that kind of everyone in our family remembers it. So one of the guys sneaked out and was actually able to get a government position in another town. And then he managed to get all his kids to emigrate Canada and to the US. So we have relatives in Texas and Alberta. And... Um, to be honest with you, they always thought, yeah, let's let's just try to get our kids out and escape. So the other part of the family, she's the only one of the there's two brothers basically. So the one side they all they are all out of China right now. Even they were related to the government, made it even easier for them to leave the country. The other side is just my wife's actually out of China. And and they're still like they're happy that she she made it, basically. Um the thing is, she thinks uh, Chinese government is evil because it controls the people's lives in many, many ways. But let's say if you see what happens in Germany and all kinds of things the government does here, it's not that much better. It's different, but there's also a kind of a, we know what's best for all kind of mentality. And I think that's a big fallacy of humans, right? So it's kind of an insufficient amount of sort of a libertarian sort of philosophy in a sense. It doesn't exist. You see, if you brainwash people for 50 really? years and have them chanting children's songs in school about how great the communist leaders are, what do you expect? You know, these guys, they can't even vote if you let them to. They don't know where to put the cross. Well, no, I don't mean about China, but like in Germany. So it, like how many of the people in Germany like that you routinely talk with are more like um, maybe libertarian minded in terms of more freedom? But can I ask a question? Why does it matter? We have 100,000 American troops occupying germany and ramstein air uh, ramstein air base right now it's yeah. not like germany has an independent foreign policy there's never that. been a single time yeah, that germany will, ever made I, an independent I'm, foreign policy decision except for the yeah. time that gerhard Schroeder was in charge you will see that actually the eu is going to let's say germany there's going to be big changes here i don't know how i can exactly explain it to you but if you see how people actually react right now to towards the us um you throw europe under the bus you know is basically how the perception here is. And I think um, it'll take time, you know, but um, the day that Nord Stream pipeline blew up, no one talked here in the supermarkets, nothing. You know, I mean, people don't forget these things. You know, there may be, there may be a history here, but... They think it's... the Russians blew it up, man. They think the Russians blew it up. Apparently Europeans don't. Well, I don't think actually we really know who blew it up. I just knew that the Danish. I can tell you right now, the BND, really... which is the German intelligence agency, is completely under the control of our intelligence agency. Of course, and thank yeah. God for that. 
everything is under the influence of, of Americans over here. We know that, you know, that doesn't mean that we actually agree to that and we are still the people living in that country. You know? Yeah, so, but no offense, your opinions are worthless. Yeah, we'll see to that. Oh, this is going to be like 1923 again? Yeah, die Well, you know, you can believe whatever you want, you know, but the thing is, you can never dominate a, a, a other country. It's too easy to dominate you guys. Yeah, but you see you you're blowing up your financial system else, right now, and there's no way you can actually keep that whole charade up. It's going to blow up in the So space. you think, my friend, so you think. Yeah, we'll see, you know. I'll see at some point. So. <laughs> well, you see, it's blowing up right such now. such a large you know. military, guys. Has so many nuclear weapons. Such a large navy. Yeah, just nuke everyone, you know. I mean, what do you want to do, you know? Sounds like that's what's going to happen at some point. Just end all of our problems. We might have to start doing it to clean house, guys. Yeah, the, yeah. Thing, with, the thing is with MAD, there's the mutual in it, right? So nuke yourselves, you know. It's <laughs> not going to happen, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's not like most of American interventionalism in Europe didn't originate from Germany originally. So it's like... The, well, you uh, see, there's no. a thing about the past that I don't give a shit about, you know. You can only well, look at what people think and there's nothing yeah, to but learn like, about. Yeah, but it is the reason why, like, Rammstein, you know, uh, has U.S. troops there. It wasn't there for just some arbitrary reason or something like that, so... Yeah, of course, we lost the war. What you can do, you know, we're still occupied. Right? Uh, you yeah. lost the war. That's one way of putting it. Uh, more like you started global genocide that had to be ended dude there is no reason many for wars countries. right i mean i'm completely against the war don't get me wrong here but once you lose a war you have occupying army that actually dictates the terms you know and exactly. it has been like that for five thousand years and Honestly, americans are still here compared right? so, I mean, to the history of the world <laughs> uh, most other countries in the history of the world would have just completely annihilated and just taken over the government of the occup occupation just nation so i would say relatively yeah. speaking like it's well we needed uh, like, them as a buffer though against the soviet union we couldn't do that right well i mean the the point exactly but the but but generally speaking like the the it's one thing to have a military base and monkey around in foreign policy it's another thing to just completely dominate and take it over i don't know that necessarily for example if uh like the uk as it stands today were taken over by the uh like reich back in you know, World War II, I don't know if they would have extended the same courtesy necessarily. The right? You mean the Conservative the right. Party? They're currently in power. No, the, no. the Third Reich. <laughs> the, I don't oh, know the that Third they would, Reich. I don't know oh, that they right. would necessarily exert, like, given the same courtesy. Well, I, I've always been of the opinion when it comes down to it. The Third Reich represents nothing more than the attempt to control an empire uh, without the resources required. The Third Reich lost the war because they didn't have enough access to fuel, especially oil and rare earth metals, to make their uh, tanks and stuff. And um, if you, I'm sure well, Hitler came on you his see, uh, Twitter chat you right see, now. I have my opinion and, on uh, my country and what happened there in the past. And the simple yeah. truth is actually that the whole monetary system just collapsed in Germany. I don't think that explains Hitler very much. No, it explains when people lose faith in their government, in the existing system. They commit holocausts? It's very easy for a different regime to come up and take 
control over the whole story, right? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Um, and you find a culprit, and every every kind of group does that, you know. I mean, that's just groupthink. It's nothing particular uh, to Germans, you know. There were a lot of unique aspects about what Germany did, which are uniquely German. And we had a technical edge, you know. We don't forget that they really had a technical, technical edge. edge over over the rest of the world, uh, yeah, of course. You did. That's what. Uh, why so you had nuclear weapons. Able to, you had better to, tanks. You had no, better planes. Better you had better well, ships. Well, the engineer, the engineer furnaces, furnaces. They took the effort to actually build furnaces to burn the people in such amounts. You know, I mean, that's a technical edge. A technical edge is that you had tanks. Uh, I'm pretty drive sure that that's not that technical the truth is if you look at the technology aspects, oh, well i can tell you that germany had to, germany germany had a copy 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 our assembly line plants germany had okay, a copy a lot of me, american you know, technology nice. yeah um, yeah for example opal was owned by gm at the time so opal had to use a lot of american technology to build yeah. uh, uh vehicles in mass running anyways yeah well you know honestly your opinion never really mattered that much in the beginning um, anyway, so, you know, America, um, so, so I'll give you an example. There was a very, there was a very good example where Hitler looked and watched the film Grapes of Wrath, you know, the book by um, John Steinbeck. And there was a film about the book called Grapes of Wrath. And in Grapes of Wrath, farmers are pushed out during the Dust Bowl in the 1930s during the Great Depression, and they're forced to go west. And he laughed at the film thinking how poor Americans were. But his, one of his advisors told Hitler, said, those guys are fleeing the farms in cars. Almost no one in Germany has a car. That's how rich they are. Even the poorest of the poor have cars in 1930s America. So, you know, Germany never stood a chance, right? And even yeah, if they tried to stand a chance. It's a resource-constrained location, no matter how you But I think it, the so. most important aspect about this is no country in world history would have attempted to stand up against three world powers, except for the Germans. Even the Japanese didn't want to do that. The Japanese refused to invade the Soviet Union. Had they, the Soviet Union would have actually collapsed, so they refused to do it. They were afraid. They couldn't take on three superpowers, the British, the Americans, and the Soviets at the same time. The Germans did. Only the Germans were willing to do that. In world history, there's only one ethnic and nation that has been willing to take on every single superpower and have 90% of the world's resources devoted against them. The Germans, because they're suicidal in nature. Fundamentally, they're suicidal, so that's why we have to occupy them. And when it comes down to it, when they realized that Russian natural resources were not worth getting into bed with Vladimir Putin, and now they're going to have a huge issue come winter because they don't have enough natural gas, they become more dependent on the United States. They don't deserve to be independent in any case. They couldn't even figure out their energy policy. They can't even figure that out. If you let these people run their country, they'll not run it into the ground. They're going to run it into other countries. That's their problem. Yeah, it's the, but there's no question there's a resource constraint problem. And anytime you create a fiat, fiat currency system uh, and your net exports um, and net energy uh, is imported, um, then you wind up with like a hyperinflation problem. Eventually, well, let's be honest. Not. There are many countries during the Great Depression that did not have the hyperinflation issues, right? Like the Soviet Union, because the Soviet Union had to import the foodstuffs. There was a famine, a very, very bad famine that Herbert Hoover had to basically figure out and fix. And people forget that Vladimir Putin, uh, sorry, Vladimir Lenin, sent a telegram to Herbert Hoover thanking him for saving the lives of millions of Soviet citizens. They didn't have enough food. They didn't have enough food because they basically focused too much on manufacturing and. 
during the Great Depression, they didn't have to import through substitution goods any key foodstuffs. By that point, they were fine. In fact, they were actually hiring Americans during the Great Depression. If you want to see a good film about this, there's a film called The Way Back, where there's a Finnish-American engineer who goes from America to the Soviet Union. There's also another film of uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, where he's an engineer, I believe, at uh, import-export firm, where he was even working in the Soviet Union at the time. So they're doing quite well. They're doing quite well because of oil. They have a lot of it. So they never had to import it. That was the issue of, uh, with Germany. They had to import almost everything. Coal was not enough for them. And so when it came down to paying in gold, because at the time it wasn't dollars, it was gold, they couldn't do it. They had to print their own currency into oblivion. America will never have that issue. We have everything in this country. What's fascinating about uh, Russia is the um, relatively decent energy makeup, but despite that, the collapsing population size, um, just the, like the meltdown of uh, Russia's population is super interesting. Well, there are two main reasons for this. There's a lot of good books about it. And if you want to understand it more carefully, go back to the Holdemore, go back to the Great Famine, especially in Kazakhstan. Um, but recently, the main cause for this is not necessarily immigration as such, but because um, the advent of state atheism reduced the impetus of families to have kids for religious reasons. It was replaced instead by incentive schemes by the Soviet government. If you had more kids, you would be uh, rewarded both in terms of money and in cars, which at the time was a very important commodity. At the end of the Soviet Union, those incentive systems ended. Now there are no incentives, religious or government, to have more kids in these types of provinces in, in Russia. The Muslim provinces, though, have a lot of kids for obvious reasons. And the main reason is because Russia still maintains very good uh, relations with both Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And both those countries spent a lot of money rebuilding the Islamic um, mosques across Russia that basically said had more babies because it's good for the religion and for the community. But in those other provinces like Siberia, in some of these, uh, Yakutsk, for example, in the far east of Siberia, the church is not strong there, guys. The church was pretty much obliterated during the Soviet Union. And the government is not going to help you have more kids. So if you have kids there, you are on your own. You're on your own. No one's going to help you. Salaries are very low. And I ask everyone right now, look at the rental prices of apartments across Russia. They're as high as in Western Europe, but the salaries are three times lower. Russian property is extraordinarily expensive and it is badly maintained. So even then, 60 to 70% of your monthly income goes into rent. Where is the money for having babies? Yep, no money for Nowhere babies. to be found. So that's really the issue. But don't, during the Soviet Union time, if you had three kids, you'd get a lot of money for it. And a car. It's not bad. Not a bad deal. Mm. You can see, basically, after World War II, the, the replacement birth rate went from three to one to two to one in the 1970s to one to one by the end of the Soviet Union. So it, it, it went away pretty quickly. The, because by the time that the 1980s came around, the incentives were not strong enough to have kids. Only in the 1950s and 60s, when Stalin's like original plan of having more babies was around to replace the people who were killed in World War II, by that point, the ruble wasn't worth enough to basically 
uh, catch up of inflation. So what is the, what, what do you think about the, so what is the current, like what's the short version of, I guess, the relationship between uh, like Putin's government and uh, like whatever Orthodox uh, Russian, Russian, or, Orthodox uh, Russian Imperial. There's a very good uh, lecture about this. Um, and I can maybe share it right now. There was a, a is ideologist theorist who basically believed that Russia was the center of Christianity. This original theory came about because after the Byzantine Empire, don't forget the Romanovs called their leader the Tsar, i.e. Caesar. They were the new leaders of the Roman Empire, protectors of Christianity, which is still in the name title of the Russian Orthodox Church. Leaving themselves as the new Roman Empire, they conquered a large area, including large parts of Asia. This man, who died abroad during exile in the course of the Soviet Union, had to be brought back recently and was buried in the presence of Vladimir Putin. He is the theorist and ideologist that Vladimir Putin um, respects and admires. He reads a lot of his work. Often Vladimir Putin quotes this man's work, talking about the protection and defense of Christianity and basically the religiosity of Russia, which of course includes Buddhists and Muslims as well. But basically, the maintenance of the Russian Empire through Christianity, which will also mean only Russia can protect the world. He believes this. And essentially what this theorist was arguing was that if there is no Russia, the world will basically fall into chaos. Why? All capital, all control will be controlled by Americans. All control will be developed in these small cliques in the West. And their culture, Eastern culture, he calls it Eastern culture. Often Vladimir Putin will talk about Eastern culture will be absolutely destroyed with no recourse, no way of Russia ever coming back. That's the belief he has. Hmm. So, um, so, so what do you think that, so what is the, like, have you seen much about the current relationship between like Putin and the Orthodox church now? Like, so besides this, Oh, very strong. The strongest so leader of the Orthodox consider, church. Does he consider himself just a Christian generally? He considers himself, and I guess this is a very good question. You know, when you go to extraordinarily strong Orthodox countries like Serbia, the relation and the spiritual relation between the individual church it goes beyond the human form. It goes into this idea of the only way of going to heaven and to being someone as a leader of a country, your responsibilities of serving the church are much stronger. To even get into heaven as a leader requires deep, deep devotion and action. And his belief is that he owes the spirituality behind the church uh, deep decisions, which includes the defense of Russia at all costs. And for him, it's a deeply spiritual matter. So it's kind of like the, the, his actions in his mind uh, may be spiritual. You could say this, yes. And not necessarily. This is not someone who's an utterly moral man. He has multiple kids. He's divorced. He's had multiple mistresses. But for him, it doesn't matter. Russia is a spiritual being. It's something that has protected culture, which is for him uh, universally important, more important than anything else in the world. For him, when you mention Russian culture and literature, it's something so incredible. You know, if you ever meet any Russians, when they talk about Russian literature, Russian culture, it, for them, when they talk about it, it's like more, it's un incomprehensible, uh, incomprehensible how important it is. And for him, he, to defend it, even the ability to extend it through war, 
is just small compared to how important it is. He would do anything to defend it, anything. There's also the guy who buys Armani's suits and, you know, loves to go shop at Savile Row when he's in London and likes the finer things in life. This is not a religious man, per se, but he's a deeply spiritual political leader. And his political thought is deeply influenced by the idea of a afterlife Russia, the spiritual Russian, the Russian culture as a omnipotent kind of idea. So he's not necessarily like show up in church and pray, but he, no, he never actions does. are kind of only for funerals. You know, his actions are kind of spiritually relevant in his mind, in a sense. Like, he believes these are deeply Russian virtues, by the way. Oh, he. Oh, you think so? He, yeah. So he he embodies sort of like this whatever Russian virtue is exactly in his. In yeah, his I mean to understand this a bit more. If you want to go into Russian literature, reading Tolstoy, you can kind of. Well, not kind of, you can totally understand. The meaning of Russia as a savior, Tolstoy's work is often about that. Tolstoy going to these, you know, this is the dude who tried to free his serfs, by the way. And his serfs actually refused because like, they thought, this dude is trying to get out of ever paying us any money. If he frees us, who are we going to work for? We're going to have no food at the end of the day. So the serfs even revolted against him. Tolstoy was very naive, but throughout his work, he goes to different places like, uh, Dagestan, for example, and talks about Abraham Lincoln and talks about um, talks about Russia uh, for giving law and order. Um, and these people who are even fighting Russia deeply respected those things. Um, if you t- read Max Gorky, these are important virtues. Russia giving order to, a, to the chaos. It's always about that. And Vladimir Putin's a very well-read man. He's probably read those books, he's probably never read the Bible, to be honest, because for him, those books are more important than the Bible. Um, do you th- like wait, wait, now which countries in Asia have you been in, like largely? All, almost all of them. So, like, uh, I don't know, like some of the mm, Southeast Asian countries, like, sure. what is the impression of like China and Russia amongst the people in like that that region? I mean, people themselves don't hear much about it. Russia and China's influence in the media is very strong. Most of these countries are controlled by the military and the intelligence services, namely Indonesia, where the last candidate, former general, countries run by military dictatorships since the World War since World War II, two military dictators. Thailand is a military dictatorship. Vietnam is a Communist Party dictatorship, which is anti-Chinese. Myanmar is a military dictatorship. Cambodia is run by this guy called Hun Sen, who was a Vietnamese proxy, then is now a military dictator who follows a Chinese line. Laos is a Communist Party military dictatorship that follows China. Malaysia is a country run by the intelligence services and the military. Philippines is kind of similar, it's kind of confusing. It's not that important country though, strategically. And Brunei, of course, everyone knows Brunei. Brunei is run by the Sultan. He uh, has a large amount of control over the oil there. And so all these countries, they have no free media. No one really cares about these things. They don't really talk about it that often. Politics are not discussed in Southeast Asia. Politics is heavily discussed as a topic of entertainment in America, but never, never in Southeast Asia. Not a really? No. So it's like it's just not a common topic of discussion in general. And like, if you let the Indonesian discuss politics freely, they would start fighting each other. Don't forget, Indonesia is a very diverse country of 250 million people. Yeah. So, you, so you think like if you have, um, so if you had what we consider kind of 
um, a re- Republican democracy, if you had these kinds of institutions in those countries, you think they would just largely be co-opted by China and other, other interventionalists? Like, in other words, if it wasn't for the sort of like uh, military uh, control. You know, most of these of- countries are American allies, by the way, like Indonesia. Mm. Right. So, yes, the people would be easily led astray. And America, a Chinese one would come in foreign to basically buy out these media conglomerates and turn them to Chinese media conglomerates if they had the opportunity. But don't forget, why would the Indonesians ever do that? The Javanese who control the country, they would never let that happen. They would never let the Chinese come into the country. Don't forget about the genocide of the Chinese ethnic group in Indonesia. Millions of them killed by the Javanese. There's even documentaries you can watch about Netflix. It was a horrible genocide. You think these people are going to let them in to their political power? Never. What, like, what, what happened there? Like, give me a version. Uh, so Harto, but... basically, yeah. So it was their version of the killing fields. Um, it's a deeply sad moment in Indonesian history. Um, so uh, I'm just trying to find the name of the Netflix documentary where you can see the, the Indonesians who reprise their roles during the genocide. The Act of Killing, 2012 documentary um, of the mass killings between 65 and 66. The mass killings, according to most people, led to the deaths of almost a million people, all Chinese, all ethnically Chinese. And the end of the Chinese Communist Party there, um, it was a massacre of machetes. And of course, most people can be able to access this documentary, uh, The Act of Killing, uh, where Indonesians who did the killing will reprise their roles in front of the camera, showing the viewer exactly what they did to kill these people. And they're very open about it. None of them went to jail. It's called The Act of Killing? The Act of Killing. Yes, The Act of Killing. The Act of Killing new film shows US-backed Indonesian death squads, which is essentially what happened. And you know what, to be honest, if that didn't happen, the Chinese Communist Party there would have taken over because they were very powerful at the time. They would have replaced Sicardo. They would have replaced Sicardo. End of story. I'm actually looking for it right now. <laughs> the act of killing. You, well, you see the... I can send you the Wikipedia if you want. You can't find it. I'm trying to find it. Can you see it? Okay, here comes the link. And I'll post it at the top. Okay, cool. Okay, one second. I wish Twitter had it. You can hear the Netflix beeping in the background. <laughs> oh, you're trying to find it on Netflix? Uh, you hmm. said it was Netflix. Oh. I don't know if it's on here or not. <laughs> it, it, it's supposed to be. It, it was supposed to be. And Things come and go on here, though. That's the thing. Here it comes. It's on the post your top. Okay, cool. <laughs> Wait, do I see it or not? Mm. Well, okay, I'll post to the top again. See Pi Space. Sure. <laughs> um, not sure what's going on. I did share it. I have some it? stuff from Al Arabia. Oh, here's Wikipedia. Yeah, there it is. Uh, Act of killing. Wikipedia. Okay, there it is. Yeah. yeah. So, but basically, and by the way, like, this happened in Malaysia too. The citizens rose up and did this, or this was like a government intervention. <laughs> Chinese. It was a CIA-backed intervention against or the some Chinese mixture. Party of Indonesia. Uh, Malaysia had the same thing, by the way. It was a very terrible genocide against the ethnic Chinese population. This is by so this was perpetrated like it's thought by who like the CIA backed hit squads uh, death squads from Saharta, the dictator of Indonesia. Okay, so it's kind of like a like a think a of Rwanda but Indonesians. Hmm. Interesting. 
Yeah. Yeah. At the, the time, world. the Chinese owned a lot of the country. They had a lot of the political, uh, a lot of the uh, financial capital. Um, it, you know, you read a book about the Chinese diaspora in Southeast Asia and understand that most of these countries, the capital is still owned by the Chinese diaspora. For example, Malaysia, Singapore, uh, Thailand, the Chinese ethnic population owns almost the entire country. Um, Philippines to an extent as well. And so these people who in some countries are very pro-American could easily switch sides. That's why Xi Jinping talked about two days ago during his speech where he was reelected by the Congress there about extending their hands to the Chinese who are living outside the center. He wants to bring them back in. Bring them back into like the fold of the party? Connecting or them, them with the, um, the party, yes. The CCP, not the Chinese nation. They're already part of the Chinese nation. Hmm. So like you use the influence of the people who have moved out of China and emigrated and kind of like figured Most out. Most of the ethnic populations of Chinese, they're already very pro CCP. They actually have been for a hundred years. There's a very good book about the uh, history, uh, about uh, Chiang Kai-shek, the biography of Chiang Kai-shek, where actually people forget this. Chiang Kai-shek was a communist for a short period of time. And he did this partially because the diaspora was very pro-communist before there was even a CCP. The CCP was actually um, a splinter party from the Kuomintang under Hun Sen. Uh, yeah, sorry, uh, Yat-sen. Sorry about that. Hu Yat-sen, who was the original leader of the socialist left-leaning, nationalist, anti-Japanese, nationalist Chinese party of the early 1900s. Very complicated guy. He died early, though. Your memory for the names is really good. Um, have you always been pretty good at remembering? Uh, I speak Chinese. What's that? Uh, what you can hear right now, I'm speaking right now. Cop, uh, from, well, I'm in the story. Uh, uh, yeah. In, um, Okay. So I'm actually at a store right now in China. So, like in general, though, you you keep up with kind of, um, I, I guess like world history, world events, quite deeply. Like, uh, maybe I read from time to time. I'm actually very pro CCP. I'm just pro CCP from Mao Zedong's era. I'm not pro Xi Jinping's CCP. A lot of people who support the CCP are of that opinion, by the way. Don't forget, Mao Zedong was a dude who went to Kissinger and Nixon and created the Sino-American alliance, which defeated the Soviet Union. So let's not think that this is like a form of treason. Mao Zedong was a dude who defeated the Soviet Union, wasn't anyone else. By removing their greatest ally, the Soviet Union had to basically ramp up its military to fight both the Americans and the Chinese. And don't forget, in the film Red Dawn, there's that scene, they say, oh, there are about 700 million Chinese fighting the Soviets. And he said there was until Beijing got nuked by 300 million left. Remember that scene from Red Dawn, the original one? Yeah, the Patrick Swayze one. Yep. They were on our side for the for 1970s onwards. Mao Zedong, Nixon met him. He's a great leader. I'm not against the CCP. I've never said anything that communism is necessarily bad. I just think that with um, a Maoist CCP in America, 
the world would be a better place. I have nothing against the CCP, just everything against Xi Jinping. So what's your uh, biggest gripe with, or like, what, what, is, what is your worry about him? Like, um, what is the thing about him most? He, I think what happened was during the Cultural Revolution, he was sent to the fields and he, deep, he harbored a deep, deep resentment against that, against Mao Zedong, because Mao Zedong was the one who created the Cultural Revolution and imprisoned many of the cadre um, of the Communist Party, the young ones. The Red Guards. And um, this is someone who believed that Deng Xiaoping and the other leaders who came after Mao were too Western-oriented and never dealt with the problems of a successful China having to deal with the world and not follow the American line. This guy takes it way too far, though. And China, the China that followed the American line under Deng Xiaoping, was a great China. And that's his problem. He thinks that he's very deep insecurity about him. He thinks that the China that kowtowed to American policy was uh, an inferior China. No, I don't think so. I think it was an equal China. But this guy has a different opinion of that. He, he resents the United States in every way possible. He resents it. Mm. So, like, the the do you see like a solution that like would change if he was out of the picture for some reason yes i would say so for a lot of people waiting in the rings you want to get rid of him and that's the reason why he got rid of the old president of china uh in that the party yeah, the last that, day of the, the that was that thing last week right hu jintao hu jintao was a great leader but he was one of the last of the malice under the the, the end of Mao. Mao had two euros. First Mao, the second Mao. And Hu Jintao was a great admirer of the second Mao, admiring the Sino-American alliance. He thought that, she, he thinks that Xi Jinping is just going way too far. It's just not necessary. It doesn't lead to more prosperity by basically trying to take on the United States. And to tag along with dying powers like Russia, a country that everyone knows is dying, is a straw, it's a paper tiger. Everyone knows this. But Hu Jintao saw what happened to him. Someone told him, get up, get out. Humiliation on a national level being repeated daily in every single TV that you walk past in China. Yeah, that, that entire thing was, uh, yes, super deliberate, right? Obviously, he's sitting right next to him and they walk him out. Um, I've seen this happen before in local Communist Party meetings. It's a very common communist way of humiliating someone a old cadre old cadre they call it um like you, you make sure every ca- every camera is watching it humiliation thing. yes mm. humiliation yeah yeah I, I think it's, this is a man of deep influence a man older than xi jinping a man who uh, is respected by the intellectual circles within china and the man who has humiliated on national tv they treated him like dirt dude like dirt. Hmm. I, I, yeah, it, it, you wonder like what the so pretty much unless he dies, it's pretty much expected he's going to remain in power indefinitely. Or do you think he just gets old enough? Oh, at, some point? at least twenty years more. Really, you think? How, how old is he now? I don't remember. Sixty-three, if I'm not mistaken. He should be that age now. 
fusion mm-hmm. thing. So he's still relatively I, young then. So he's got some. Years I'm not mistaken because he would have been that age for the fourth revolution. Oh, I believe he's. Oh, sorry, sixty nine. So fifteen years. He's a yeah. So that yeah, it, it seems like he's pretty well consolidated in terms of power. I don't I don't know what the complete power. He's control all the major provinces: Fujian, Xinjiang, Sichuan, obviously Beijing, Shanghai, Guangdong. They has control of all of them. Hmm. Uh, hey, Robert, what's going on? Robert, you there? He refuses to speak. Yeah, you. <laughs> yeah go ahead. Let's, I'm let's sorry. What's up? Um, I wanted to ask Jimmy a, a question. Sorry, Jimmy. Please, with all the respect, like, how old are you? Old. Old. No, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't know. You've been talking and I've been listening and I'm, bro, God, you're too vast. Like, you moved from. I'm an old man and I respect no, and admire that you're with people very much. Oh no! Honestly, like I, well, why I asked your age? It's 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 kind of like motivates me. Get it? Because um, looking at you now, I'm, I'm asking myself the question: Where did you get this information from? And then you said you just read. You just read. So definitely, it's all about I, time. I'm currently in China right now, man. Wow. You speak how many languages again? Many languages. Yeah, how many languages do you speak? More than I can remember. Wow. I was recently at a conference for memory, but I forgot to go. Wow. <laughs> God. God. That's one way of not answering, yeah. Yeah. Jimmy, you're good. You're good. Oh, that, see, I, I'm sorry. With all due respect, I'd like you to mentor me. Like, you're good. Like, I, ah, God. How many hours do you You're talking? more wise than me because you've dealt with harder problems than I have and had to solve and overcome them. I just talk very quickly and people think that I know more. It's not true, though. It's all charisma and vanity. No, 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 no. Ego does not mean back. intelligence. No, before you came back, yeah, Sefi spoke about you. It was like, um, Jimmy, the, uh, Jimmy is actually uh, an literal person. He gets it. Like, it's why he allows you to talk about you. I should just forgive you. I was like, no, 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 I actually do like you. You get it. So for Jimmy, uh, for Sefi to talk about you that way and then you coming on board is why I actually kept quiet. All I never liked him. Talk- <laughs> yeah, Jimmy hates me. But Sefi, Sefi, isn't it true that sociopaths dislike compliments? Uh, sociopath dislike compliments. I don't know. That's an interesting one. Mm. Sure. People who have deep, deep psychological stress and psychosis are known to dislike compliments. Hmm. Sorry, Jimmy, how many hours are you with Paddy? I'm, I'm sorry. What? Sorry? How many, how, how many hours do you read per day? How many hours do I read per day? Yeah. Like three, plus I have a meeting in 10 minutes. So okay. three, but I just read, you know, stuff you on like, Amazon Kindle. Okay, could you give me like five, um, your, your, your mentors or who you see, who you respect? And then if you'd fight. Oh, Dominic, uh, Dominic Levivian. He's one of the best writers on Russia right now. Well, actually, if there ever has been, that would be one example. Um, uh, my One of my favorites is just histories of the Roman Empire, which talk about taxes, because then you really understand how you run an empire, which is a very hard thing, by the way. So Granger, just type in Granger Roman Empire, you'll find some good books by, by him, hmm. um, okay. which is, I believe, more important than understanding anything about um, these people who run the Roman Empire. People read about the emperors when... They weren't really running the Roman Empire. It was really the tax system that ran the Roman Empire. 
Um, another thing that would be important to read would be, um, sorry, his name is Rule McLaughlin. So I'm going to send you, I'll send you the, 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 the title. I, I should join Goodreads. Um, the Roman Empire and the Silk Routes would be one of his books. And the other one's called The Roman Empire and the Indian Ocean, the Ancient World Economy, which talks about how they invaded like Yemen and Sudan, but left because it wasn't enough money. Um, I also read books uh, such as books on Christianity and Islam that talk about the similarities, um, how they are influenced by other cultures. That's an important aspect um, that I think that everyone should follow. So, for example, um, Daniel, what's his name again? Daniel, I'll finish the books. I'm not the, the Daniel Boyarin, The Jewish Gospels, very good book about Christianity and Judaism and how it influenced uh, those religions in Islam. Um, that's interesting. Um, I think also books about Buddhism from Afghanistan, because Buddhism was really powered in Afghanistan. It went from modern day Nepal, northern India to Afghanistan and then went east. So if you can read a book about um, uh, Central Asia uh, to understand the how Islam and, and Buddhism interact with one another, that would be important. So I'll have to send you something like that. But um, one of the books is called Lost Enlightenment, Central Asia's Golden Age from the Arab Conquest to Tamerlane. That would be a very good book to start with by uh, Frederick Starr, S-T-A-R-R, two R's at the end. <clears throat> and um, uh, another one is the Russian foreign, uh, foreign policy from the Russian perspective. Um, there's a lot of good books about that um, by um, so for example um, uh, just trying to find the guy's name there was a coup against Yeltsin and the guys who basically were defeated wrote some books about how they viewed history through the Russian perspective um, so that's that's quite interesting um it's called uh here i got the name but i have a hard time pronouncing it. my russian isn't that good uh, yegeny pramakov um his book is called the russians and the arabs behind the scenes in the middle east from the cold war to the present translated by, from russian by paul gould um so he was a part of uh the foreign ministry of russia for most of the later part of the soviet union uh, those types of books are the ones i read Thank you very much, Jimmy. Um, find I actually find them in Library Genesis for free. Okay. Okay. So what, what does such do? Go to Library Genesis where you can download all these books for free. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm actually going to come back to this piece to listen again. I didn't want to like stop you whilst you were talking so you wouldn't kind of like miss out. I kind of feel like you're in the spirit while talking again. So thank you. Mm. But is, is that all? Is that all? Or you feel like yeah, that's where to start. Now? What you'll get is a very deep understanding of how foreign policy is built by bureaucrats. And if you ever join a bureaucratic organization, which I did because I worked at several international organizations as a bureaucrat for a short period of time, you realize how easy it is to make decisions that affect too many people, but have no responsibility for ever making bad decisions and how hard it is to explain them and how hard it is to find the evidence of who actually did what. And that's really important to investigate. Yeah, thank like you, an interesting thing about um, sort of like information. Um, if you look at, it, it's very difficult to 
chronicle the history of anything because we don't even know exactly what's going on now at any given moment. So if you took just all the- And it's much harder because it's much easier to delete the evidence. One of the reasons why it was a lot easier to understand history earlier is because we had a lot of evidence, a paper, paperwork. There's always a paper trail, always a paper trail. Mm, yeah, there's that. But you, even like if you look at the the moment, the, the right now, uh, you know, like to a majority of the people on the planet, what the rest of the people on the planet are doing is largely uh, a fog. Essentially, it's like you you don't really have you, you don't ever have total knowledge of the now to really get a good sense of like the total knowledge of the of history anyway, because there's, yes, I mean, I've written a book about the history of Syria and you interview 10 people, you get 20 different opinions. You read one example of fact, for example, a document, you show them this document, you show each interviewee, this document, the same document, you'll get two opinions from each person about what the document means. You get 20 different opinions. No one has any idea. Same document though. Yeah. Just the nature of information is such, it's fascinating. Mm. Well, like, so do you like um, looking at history just because you enjoy catching up with it? Do you do you have like uh, sort of two types of people are interested in history? Those who try to use it to sound smart and weaponize against others and those who are studying it to actually get academic jobs in history. I am interested in history because it is a puzzle that can never be solved. It is simply a mental puzzle. You read different things, you try and put them together like a jigsaw. But I also like different games like Go. I like some board games, not so many, some of them. But they're simply a puzzle to keep the mind active, to not have Alzheimer's. Yeah, so it's like for you, it's just the, this, yeah, this impossible puzzle to put together. And it's like a dot connecting exercise to some extent. Yes. Uh, when you read books on math, on computer science, there will always be a way to solve it. The problem with history is that it's very hard to solve. And I dislike when people say history is about people and events. For me, they're not. For me, they're about people with different amount of evidence versus others and different opinions, and there'll never be any way to reconcile that. Nothing more. It's not truly about people. Most of these people who write books have never met the people they talk about or write about. And it's certainly not about events, because to say an event ended at this point and was influenced by these factors is overly deterministic. It's nearly impossible to fully understand, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Or maybe redu- it's reductionist in the sense that you're you're it's always more complicated than that, right? Like you're 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 filtering it down to a few narratives that you think. Well, I guess I, I worked for briefly uh, in an intelligence capacity and had to <clears throat> look deeply into the souls of the people I was interviewing for their lives were at risk for the wrong answers. And you realize very quickly the amount of power that you can have over someone. And the ability to make a decision about what to do with them resides in you, the person giving a recommendation. So you need to be careful of how you write things and word them, how you analyze things. That part of the puzzle is always important for you personally. But to weaponize it, to talk about it as if you're smarter than others is ridiculous. Yeah. Yep. Yo, um, Jimmy, sorry, I have like two questions. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Seth, I got to get going in a minute, but yeah, go ahead. Uh, can you be quick? Sorry. Uh, okay, yeah. Number one, do you play um, chess? Do I play chess? Yes. Yeah. Okay, good. That's first question. The second question. Um, talking about... I don't like um, it that says, much, but... Yes, yes, I like... Okay. Go ahead. 
okay, so the second question, yeah. You were um saying something. The problem about- with chess, which Elon Musk, by the way, pointed out, is the lack of fog of war. You always are aware of the other person's move. That is not what real life is like. In history and many other subjects, you have no motherfucking idea what happened, why it happened, or why something happened 10 years from now, but the same event. Well, that's the problem with chess. Jesus. Yeah, what's the second question? What's the second question? Uh, okay. It's about, uh, okay, it's about recommending books. Um, when you're talking about um influencing people within you said something, you said um you get into your soul, you get to like connect with your soul or something in that light, yeah. So what books would you recommend to be able to learn that skill? Work at a government bureaucracy and see if someone's lying or, or not. <laughs> There's like no it. way of pushing people to make decisions. At a government bureaucracy, you have no control over most decisions. And in government committees, you cannot force someone to do something because they can't be fired. So you just have to tell if this person is trying to be nice to you or is trying to fuck you. That's all you can do when you work yep. as a bureaucrat. And to, so the ability to judge is <laughs> a very important skill. If you cannot do it, you'll not last long. And um, so that you have to work at a bureaucracy. No, no reading will help you. Okay. Okay. So could you just give me like an int? You've done it before, yeah. So I believe you would have some things blurted out, yeah. Could you just give like an int or something more like a, like a foundation? What? I'm confused. A foundation of what? Okay. You said it, books will not teach it, yeah. But then experience and time has taught you, right? So could you please give like uh, a foundation, like for a person to start up or for a person to understand that concept? What's the foundation? Oh, um, you work at any one of the Nigerian government bureaucracies. You see the kind of corruption that exists there. Mm-hmm. And you s- sit silently for a year listening to meetings and then get a mentor who will explain how the system really works. And then after a year, once you discover how corruption works in that system, you leave. And then you've had your year in government and bureaucracy. And you realize just how easy it is to manipulate the entire system for your own advantage. Um, and that that's that's it. So uh, that that's that's all. Thank you, Jimmy. Uh, I, I would echo that sentiment. That's probably about right. Having worked for uh, government myself, Yo, in this is facts. this is the second time I've heard <laughs> Jimmy speak. I fucking I hate him at first, but he's so right about everything. I think <laughs> he just sounds so confident in his words, and it all makes sense. It's always a pleasure to listen to you, Jimmy. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, I like Jimmy. Jimmy hates me, though, apparently. <laughs> but anyway, oh, wait, Jimmy! Oh, he's gone. Oh. He's gone. <laughs> he had a meeting to go to. Hey, yeah, give him a good outro, <laughs> though. <laughs> yeah, see, like everyone makes fun of Jimmy because uh, he comes on and he kind of is like acts hysterical and stuff. But um, his his depth of knowledge is uh, uh, like, and his just like. I don't know, autistic ability to remember a bunch of names and shit is always impressive. Yeah, yeah, like, very yeah. impressive. There's a lot, of, like, he reminds me of a few people, but those people don't pull it off as well as he does because they kind of, like, do it in a way where they rub it in your face. And it's not that you'll, exactly. it's not that you'll like everything he says because, obviously, he'll, he'll have uh, sort of, like, uh, certain types of angles and opinions based on his, like, experience and whatever he's read and all that. But like, it's always interesting to sort of just sit back and go, wait, all right, what motivates a person? What have they read? What's, what kind of philosophies do they have? And, you know, it doesn't have to agree with you. In fact, it could be completely opposite of what you think of reality or anything else. But it's just, it's uh, fascinating to like, look at it from the eyes of someone that 
reads as much as he does and kind of has done all the different things. So he, he strikes me as kind of like this perpetually single guy, just like roaming the world, going to different countries and shit. Bro, I wish and I was asexual. Absolutely. He doesn't He doesn't waste a bunch of fucking time with like, you know, I don't know, like marriage and kids and all that shit. So he has a lot of time to sort of like, he has this like perpetual, like, I don't know, like bachelor traveler lifestyle or some shit that, so his, his knowledge base uh, is based on like, obviously a lot of time that the rest of us don't have. Yeah, he doesn't need romance or uh, or sexual, you know, you know, adventures. He he just likes otters, and he's a he's a simple guy with lots of books. Honestly, I, I had to even ask him that. Okay, how many hours do you read per day? Because I don't know, I don't know. It it takes it takes your brain to be like uh, I don't know. It takes your brain to have about one terabyte, and then you're about nine eighty six gig away from I don't know. You've used up that space to store in memories or store in information like. He's just too, ah, almost too vast. He's kind of unusual, and he understands kind of like Machiavellian tactics on the one hand. He's done video game work, so he sort of understands some game theory principles as well. He's worked all over Asia, like, like a lot of different countries that, uh, that I recall talking to him about. And um, he's just kind of like this perpetual roamer, and he has all this weird knowledge about stuff that you never would unless you travel a lot. And, um, you know, he, and he's not LARPing and shit because nobody fakes that shit. Like, I would know. <laughs> like, <laughs> as, as someone who's been around a fair amount, like, he's not just making shit up. He's, he's actually fairly sharp. Um, like, you know, and he, and clearly a lot of the information's at his fingertips. Yeah, like him or not. Um, and a lot of the sort of, like, Machiavellian shit he describes, like, between intelligence agencies and this and that and the other thing, like, a lot of those things actually just straight up happen. So, occasionally he'll talk about something that I know something about at some level. And I'm like, yep, that's, that's correct. So like, there's not really a good reason for me to believe that like, I don't know, he's just sort of like making up stories as he goes. Um, so uh, yeah. And his uh, memory of authors and uh, whatnot, like I, I, I don't have anywhere near that kind of like remembrance of names and things. So it's like immediately obvious to me that his memory power is really, really good. Um, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. He's, but yeah, some people are like just always reading, like they never stop, right? And it's it, it's really obvious. Yeah, you know, you know when we were talking about your childhood, you said something about uh, the weekends you spend it in the library. I'm very sure Jimmy was definitely the son of a librarian that um probably locked him inside at the library for like he spends about eight years. Just yeah, we got to find out what his parents did to him. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> next time I'm, I have him on, I'm gonna ask what did you do? do? They just locked you up in the closet with some books or what? Hey guys, I, I just mowed the lawn, uh, played with the little one, and I think uh, Jimmy left as soon as I joined in. But I'm glad to see you guys are still talking about the same things. And I have to say, he as had much to, as he had I to go disagree, to work. <laughs> yeah, as, as much as I disagree with some things that Jimmy was saying, uh, I have to appreciate the, the the truth and the insight when he talked about. Uh, being a bit uh, re- realistic in the world and how things actually work and how America or other countries don't actually care about the people or morality or the high standards that people usually expect uh, these countries to uphold and uh, th- those things actually aren't considered in the real world. But again, you're going to have people who have differing views who are sitting in the same room who spent all their life together 
And as uh, Sefi was just saying that it's you get your opinions and your thoughts from people who you spend time with and the authors that you read and the news that you read and the people that you listen to. So your opinion isn't actually your opinion. It's the opinion of the person that you're reading or listening to, or it's a mix of all the people that you're and a lot of the things, listening a lot of the to and spending time with. Yeah, a lot of the influences are actually somewhat random too, right? Because you may see something interesting on TV today and you're like, ooh, that's interesting. So you read a bunch of shit, you go down that rabbit hole, you find out more. So yeah, your environment and your uh, external influences and what you decide to research and what you don't or whatever the hell um, is somewhat random in that sense. Um, like, I don't know what you're going to read next week any more than you do in a sense, right? Like if you think about it. Um, so if you, if, you know, at the book that you haven't picked up yet, uh, unless it's on a list somewhere and you have, you're ready for it. Like, you know, you, you may not know what you're going to read next week any more than I, I do. As far as like, for example, like do either of us know what we're going to read in the newspaper or something or on uh, the latest, uh, blog or whatever a week from now? No, we have no idea. So the future is sort of unknowable. And which things are going to influence you is basically unknowable. And um, it's just like a random like stream of consciousness sort of kind of concept that all your information and influences come from. Um, but yeah, it's interesting when someone can clarify with that level of specificity, like the type of things that influence their particular views. Like some people are really, really good at elucidating why they believe what they believe and most of us like believe some random shit but have no fucking clue what we're talking about as far as like why we believe it so a lot would, of our a lot of I our would, beliefs are super superficial is what i'm saying i would like to argue millennials are are statistically better than that than generations before them millennials and zoomers um with the age of information on the internet being more open-minded but yeah i totally understand what you're saying by that makes a lot of sense i really disagree with that i think I that know. millennials have been influenced more by hollywood and uh, the internet and what's cool and what's not and you've not actually been able to see the raw cultures or thoughts or values of different people and it's kind of been the same the same kind of wokeness that's been infused into all of the millennials or Gen Z or uh, the, the the current fucking generation, whatever we call it, it's 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 not those differing views. It's where the current world is so polarized. It's insane. The right and the left are so far apart. It's crazy. Although I would say there was no time historically that was some kind of grace period where everyone was really good in the retrospective scope like people will tend to glorify their adolescent years assuming you had decent adolescence you weren't beaten by your parents or something like assuming you had a decent adolescence you're going to have a tendency to glorify that time period above all other time periods just a human bias and it happens to every generation so it's like i don't know that like the children of the 80s or the millennials or whoever are statistically dramatically better or worse although obviously there's like a huge um social media and um sort of like screen time influence uh in the year 2000 and beyond for sure so if you were born in 2000 um so, yeah well or whatever well that would be technically the millennial right 
is the no i think millennials end in the 90s 96 it's all mag it's all for magazines anyways however yeah whatever v brought up a great point like that i wasn't even considering i was thinking of like logical reasoning but he definitely hit the nail on the head when it comes to consumerism i i agree with that 100 percent yeah i I mean you you have what officially millennial is I was looking oh, at millennial. I think it's people who are born in the late eighties and uh, between the late eighties and the late nineties. I think mid eighties, mid nineties. Yep. Mid. Yeah. 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 Pretty. Pretty much around that time. Of of of. St- I, I'm a millennial, and I know that my. Uh, even though I was raised in Kashmir my whole life, I was born in London, but I was raised in Kashmir. I'm in Kashmir on holiday right now for a few weeks, but I know that my childhood and uh, my adolescent even though i was in a uh, i was in a village in kashmir it was inf- influenced by hollywood and uh, social media and everything else and uh, in terms of culture i was closer to europe than to the local culture and that was because i was spending so much time on oof, myspace at that time you had MySpace. oh good for you man and Tom. All, all of that rubbish so yeah. <laughs> so yeah even though you've had all these people from that were that were all that were in different countries they had that similar culture because of social media and the internet well a, a big difference is is the um like so the late 2000s in particular as Zoomers. cell phone screens essentially became substantially better like 2000 basically iphone plus uh, iphone and ahead of that right that's really the most uh like that's the most dramatic increase in sort of internet access uh like to a substantial portion of the world that didn't happen before but on the other hand like if you looked back in the 80s the number of people that had access to a half decent computer um even before you could actually connect it to the internet to do anything with it um was super super tiny right like you 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 were literally at the 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 pinnacle of like you know everyone in the history of time before you in a sense like because the kind of access you had it was really pretty rare i i had the fortune of um my father having been in sort of like the printing industry which um means that for his business, he got one of the like dramatically more expensive Mac computers um, with like um, you know full desktop publishing and this that the other thing, and got to learn computing very very early. Um, you know, so had access to computers that a child like would not ne- you you would, most children wouldn't have access to like a fifty thousand dollar computer rig in the you know at that time period, right? Like, it's so really super fortunate to have had to. Ex- experience some of that and so by the time like um i don't know the internet and such came along i had already been playing on everything from like modem based bulletin boards to i don't know what um so actually the internet like even myspace and some of those things like didn't seem that interesting to me by that point i was already like sort of past it to some That's extent so like, interesting, dude that would explain a lot about your vocabulary Sophie. it's it's actually pretty impressive honestly well, I was just saying, like, well, the other thing is I lecture a lot. Like, that's sort of one of the things I do for a living is I teach lots of doctors. So, um, you know, when you're teaching science-based anything, 
your language has to have a high degree of specificity. Otherwise, you're simply going to say the wrong thing. Um, so you have to, like, when it comes to discussing probability-based sciences, your language has to reflect uncertainty. It has to reflect, um, well, probability. And it, you have to encapsulate a lot and do so without making language errors that are going to make you say scientifically incorrect things to large audiences, right? So like, uh, or like on TV or something like that. So, uh, you know, that results in a, t a, a manner of speaking that I think seems like really nerdy and sometimes too verbose. Like you're like, wait, why do you, why do you talk so much? It's because there's a certain minimum amount of words necessary to get a point across. And if you make it too concise, you're reducing it to a point where it's like, you're not really saying anything. Right. So that, so this is the problem. Um, so, so anyway, like, yeah, that's where sort of my manner of speaking comes from, I guess. No, man. Hey, don't worry, dude. I, I'm in spaces a lot. I listen to a lot of hosts. You're one of my favorites and you do a great job of not showboating anything about yourself. You, you allow other people to shine to keep the, to keep the show overall entertaining for everyone. So don't ever second guess that, man. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, well, it's like kind of, that's sort of what I do for a living. It's like, you have to let new doctors who you're training sort of like uh, present their work and sort of like learn the ropes in a sense. If you just simply like tell them everything, right? Like the, it's, you have, I don't know what the answer is. Like you have to let them, the audience participate a little bit, right? Um, the other thing like I like uh, a lot is um, like Lex Friedman is really good. I don't know if you've seen his, um, of course, his podcast and stuff. He's on Rogan all the time. Love him. Yeah. So, so Rogan's good in that he's funny, um, and he's actually fairly. Rogan's not that funny though, man. He's, I he's fairly he's fairly well rounded. Um, yeah. For, for as a guy, but at the same time, the difference is is Lex, um, you know, is trained in essentially math and at least one form of engineering and computer science and stuff. So he's able to, I think speak to people like scientists and stuff um, at a level um, that a person with a science background would, right? You're not going to connive him so easily with, I don't know, claims about, say, for example, viruses or vaccines that are sort of like way off the wall. Like even if he, oh, he, inter if you, he, if he interviews people with different uh, unusual viewpoints, that's fine. But he'll push back in the sense that he'll like, wait, do you actually have evidence for that? You know, that kind of thing. Um, so so he, he speaks like Scientific. more the language of an engineer he's, or a scientist. He, yeah, it's scientifically, not personally. Joe Rogan's very personal. He's very the man's man, connective. He's a flamboyant alpha male, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, yeah, I get it. No, he's he's enjoyable to listen to. I like that too. I think it's fun, um, and and I think for a lot of um, like guests, he brings out the sort of fun in them, right? Like he brings out a certain um, angle to a person because of his personality, which is great. Like that's cool, right? But at the same time, would you have him interviewing a doctor at a medical conference? The answer yes, is no. I I, I would because he, he would have no fucking clue what he's talking about. But the thing about. is, like, what yeah, Joe see, does, he, he's the good mediator between, like, the, nah, every, the everyday just... blue collar 
to the scientist, you know? No, but the blue collar person, to, like, we don't give a fuck what they think. That's just nonsense. <laughs> fuck you then, too. No, in all seriousness, like, <laughs> science, science is about, like, sort of like, there's a specific process involved. And, like, bullshitting your way through it is not how it's done. If you want me to bullshit no, no, no. my it's, way it's, through your life, it's, it's basically sl- when you're sl- about to die, uh, right? It's then simplifying I can do that, logic. But, right? Simplifying logic doesn't mean, like, you know, blue collars don't deserve to understand, try to understand. No, but like, what you could, know. You, like, for example, if I sort of made up some shit, right? I could make you believe almost anything about medicine if I say it in the, the right way, right? So you need someone who actually like knows scientific research and can call me out on bullshit, right? There's a difference. It's not like, well, you can just logic your way through it. This is not how this works. I could basically manipulate and do a fucking anything science-wise if I wanted to, right? So you need to have someone who's also knowledgeable in science and go, wait a minute, the data doesn't show that. That's not what those statistics mean. That <laughs> well, study why, is insufficient to make that, that claim, right? Well, that's why Joe has Jamie. <laughs> but yeah, great well, point, man, honestly. But you see my point? Like, you want to have, like, so when we do, like, a medical conference, right, you have, like, an army of doctors who are all at the top of their game watching your presentation to figure out how many, like, ways they can figure out to trip you up, right? That's what you're presenting to. That's a very different audience who's being very critical of what you're doing. And they're not there to play fun and games with your ass, right? They're trying to figure out, wait, is what this guy's saying something I should take home to my home city and practice medicine this way on? And is there sufficient literature and evidence to suggest I should do this to people? Or is it like, uh, I don't know, like the conclusions are not sufficient or good enough or whatever. You see what I'm saying? Like there's a difference. So I think I that's feel like, I feel like you're biased uh, towards Joe because of his his methods of curing COVID. Is that, is this where this is coming from? Well, it's just, it's just one example where like it's like the common man's version of what they think is a truth is just largely just driven by like Twitter memes and nonsense. And it's just like has no relationship to reality at all. Like this is the this is the problem. Like if you don't know the difference between fiction and reality a person can make you believe almost anything, right? right? Like, so this is the problem. Like, so, you know, so what I'm like saying is, is like, yeah, course. what I'm saying is, is that like, uh, uh, if, if I'm a medical professional, like deciding what the guidelines are going to be at the NIH, like I'm not watching the Joe Rogan podcast or the Lex Friedman podcast to figure out what the fuck that's going to be. Right. Like that's not how that's done. Like you'd be some kind of imbecile to do that. Right. It makes no sense. And actually what you should understand, too, is like the people that make the rounds on those kinds of like shows are not always or almost ever the actual experts in that particular area. Like, for example, one of the guys that Joe Rogan brought on, and I think Lex might have also the same guy was a guy making the rounds that way back when sort of made a hint that he quasi-discovered like the mRNA vaccine process, right? But tries to make claims about sort of like the nature of that technology today, which he basically knows almost nothing about, but because he was in a lab at one point long time ago. That'd be like me saying like, okay, because I did a little bit of stem cell research back in the late, oh, I don't know, like when was that? Yeah, like you know, early uh, 2000s, like that means that I'm some sort of like, you know, like expert on stem cells at this point. 
I don't know a fucking thing about stem cells at this point. Just because I dabbled in it or whatever doesn't mean I'm some sort of like, you know, technical expert, right? I'm, you're not going to be like, oh, yeah, go ahead. Cure me with your stem cell knowledge, man. You just played I with it a little bit back. Episode. You follow I, what I'm saying? So, I remember like, that episode. It got me really curious. Yeah, it got you about- curious. But the, the guy's a fuck nut. He doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. And this is the, this is the problem when you're not an actual – you don't have sufficient so, expertise. But the, what, what you end up thinking what, is, is that anybody's super, an expert. super like like excited about it is the – the the examples that they point out about what happened with people with those stem cells like implants and I don't know it just seemed like really cool idea. I, well, I mean, here's the thing: like, who would you want to see? You would want to see like if you wanted to know about, let's say, I don't know, pick your controversial subject: mRNA vaccines, right? Yeah, fucking, you would want uh, to hear yeah, from like Joe Rogan's uh, what how he cured COVID. Yeah, but you'd want who would you want to hear from? You'd want to hear from people who are at, I don't know, a Pfizer or a Moderna. Yeah, but here's the problem. Like, millennials don't trust the fucking media, bro. Yeah, but nobody gives a fuck what millennials want or trust. <laughs> Dude, You're you acting like nobody gives... Look, scientists you know what, don't though? give a hey, that's funny. Fuck that's funny as fuck you say that, but at the same time... You're, so listen, look, you're playing on the phones that were built by a generation, and, like, you're worried about who you can trust, right? Like, it's... Like, the entire technical world as you see it today was like created within a generation and it's like you live in that world like what is there not to trust you eat the food that was created by it you eat the it's, the, like, it's everything the prop- it's the propaganda bro it's the propaganda. yeah the propaganda is brainwashing you thinking you need to like be mistrustful of every fucking thing in the universe it's just not it's like this paranoia is just nonsense yeah no shit right it's like, a waste I, of emotional energy you right, can spend the time I, instead becoming an actual scientist. It's just quicker. <laughs> just, like I graduated from college. You just spent eight years, years in college. No big deal. No, I graduated from college in three years, high school in three years, right? I was the youngest graduate from medical school in the history of that school. And, you know, I skipped another year earlier before that. Like, so, like, in other words, I wasn't wasting my life fucking around pa- with paranoid delusions about who is ruling what. That's how you fucking rule the world. You just go do it, right? Well, I mean, personally, I'm, <laughs> I'm not worried about shit. Honestly, say. I'm just doing me. I'm just saying, like, bro, like, there's obviously Democrats and Republicans fighting over the news outlets, and it just makes you always think, what's the fuck's the truth, you know? And by, what's by the way, guys, I've got to jump. I've got an important phone call coming. I'm sorry. I'll catch you guys later. He wanted to talk. God damn it. Sorry. Sorry, V. <laughs> Thanks for checking out another episode of The Ether. That was part three of the three-part Chepe Space Everything. Recorded on Wednesday, October 26, 2022. For TerraSpaces.org, I'm Finn. Thanks for listening. And if you want to keep listening, head on over to TerraSpaces.org slash donate and show some support. When we blow through the dust, volcanoes erupt. No one ever guessed that the game would be tough. Keep it hands off when the play is a bust. Plain old and just, so we keep it on the one. Blast off on the two. Help me see the three. Third eye open wide, checking out the scene. Razor beam focused, star scream jokers. Living off the fat of the people they approach. Tell me what happens when the land fights back. With the cliffs at our backs, make the last stand matter. No one ever planned for the famine on deck. We was walking all erect. With the dead man swagger Sitting in a little den Envision in the middle men Listen to the fiddle man Play a little ditty then Talk about how All the leaders seem reptilian Lost in the maze Trying to make the next Bubba-bubba-billion 
Talk about how all the leaders seem reptilian Lost in the maze trying to make the next B-B-B-Billion Vision in the middle, men listen to the fiddle man play a little ditty, then talk about how all the leaders seem reptilian, lost in the maze, trying to make the next. No one gave a shit till the drugs all dried up. Everybody died from a bad batch of Lysol, but it didn't matter. We was all hyped up when the pedal lit the metal. He just didn't have the right skill. Watched in the daytime till the night curfew. Rats in a cage till they make time to murk you. Got a little job that falls under my purview. We gotta get this mob away from the birds. Gotta find cover, wipe off the bird poop Ride off the work while you try on the worst juice Blinded by perps who try to reverse truth Slide like Fox News just trying to lie to you Eating up the slop like a bunch of hungry vagrants I can't wait for the day they lock us up in stasis Mock up a basement could call me resilient Waiting for the internet to make me a b-b-b-billion Vision in the middle, men listen to the fiddle man play a little ditty, then talk about how all the leaders seem reptilian, lost in the maze, trying to make the next billion. Talk about how all the leaders seem reptilian, lost in the maze, trying to make the next billion. Two spaces.